Okay, we'll see what the first day of what kind of questions come up. Is the urge to adjust the posture rises in me. So do thoughts and memories. Can you re-explain the best way to work with these? Well, you know, the body and mind basically is just a big habit, a habit machine. And it's basically just, you know, programmed, like wired, like a, you know. And all the, the brain is in our mind and nervous system is just electromagnetic energy uh, interacting with, with molecules and, you know, creating all kinds of dots and dashes and, you know, similar to what a com- how a computer is operating, you know. Like Google, you punch in a couple of letters and all of a sudden it projects the future, right? It, it second guesses what you're, you're trying to, to do. So our mind is also doing that. And basically it's because we're, we've allowed it to happen. And we've been practicing it the whole life, reacting to this and that, giving in to our urges. Always, uh, and the mind always has to be active. And unfortunately, that's what we're stuck with. I mean, yes, it's all right for ordinary living to some extent, but the problem is when you don't want it, it doesn't stop automatically. So that's you know what we have to deal with when you start to meditate. And you start to want to you know, change or you know manage your reactions and so on, it's not that easy. Uh, And so, you know, but the meditation technology of developing mindfulness, concentration and wisdom, these are, you know, the Buddha's methods for learning how to gradually get a handle on that. And basically we don't like anything that's painful. And most people have a very low uh, pain tolerance. And that's, again, it's a habit that we've seen everybody else do. So as a child, we copy that. We see people, you know, react, you know, scratching this and that and reacting to things. So we think that's normal, the child, right? So it just imitates. The child basically just imitates the parents, the friends, what they see on TV. Oh my God. Yeah. So anyway, uh, <clears throat> not all of it. <laughs> uh, you know, so it's a big thing that we're up against in terms of trying to uh, reprogram. Basically, meditation is a way of learning how to rewire the brain and nervous system rewiring it out of neurotic uh, reactive reactions to stimuli into more moderated and reasonable uh, responses in situations. 
But most people are just knee-jerk reactions to the various things that you hear, feel in the body, and even, you know, of course, your thoughts. Because we usually just run with our thoughts, and that we've allowed it to do that. And we, we rely on our memories, because that's what we identified with. The ego is just identified with its past and its memories. Without that, it's nothing. And that's scary for somebody with a big ego. So that's what it clings on to keep. So, no, I'm real, I'm real, you know. This ego is real. Keep protecting it. Justifying why it, you know, should do things. But again, that keeps just digging the mind deeper and deeper into a whole, like, I mean, the, the whole of conditioning. And then we continue to suffer the, the consequences in terms of stress, anxiety, worry, fear, and all kind of unwanted uh, thoughts. Because, uh, you know, we, we've programmed them. So it's really just through, you know, mindfulness, Learning to be grounded in the present moment, again, that's the, that's the first step. And you've got to be able to observe the sensations and the thoughts with some kind of detachment in order to get a little distance from them. So the concentration, the mindfulness and the concentration helps to create this kind of space, what I call the buffer zone the buffer zone of awareness. In other words, be able to observe a pain, but without immediately reacting. And see the urge. Okay, there's an urge, but it's just an urge. So what? doesn't mean you have to give in to it. And you just watch it. Ah, urging, urging. And you just watch the urge, and you see that, you know, the, the hand tightening up that wants to lift up and scratch something. Or, you know, the, the leg that wants to change its posture. And you, you observe that. You say, relax, relax. This pain's not going to kill me. You know, it's not life-threatening in most cases. So you have to sometimes reason it out by talking yourself through some of these things. And also realize that the more you give in to these things, you're always going to be plagued by them because of, of the habits. And it's not you that's doing it. It's electromagnetic energy magnetized energy that's circulating in circuits and neurons. It's not you. That's the whole bedrock of the Buddhist teaching. There's no individual self that actually can control anything. But there's methods, there's strategies of learning how to deal with it. Uh, you know, when you learn the steps, you have to learn just like, you know, you want to repair a radio or a car engine, you've got to know what you're doing, right? You have to study what an engine, how an engine works, right? So when something happens, you can reflect back, okay, this happened, okay, maybe it's the carburetor, maybe it's the points, whatever. So the same way, when we run into trouble with our mind, then we have to rely on this understanding that's part of the wisdom, to think ourselves out of it. I say, okay, this, this pain is just a molecules and 
atoms and molecules rubbing against each other, producing friction. It's just sensation. It's not going to kill me. And to learn how to just uh, observe it and relax around it, not pay so much attention to it. You know, feel something else. You don't really have to watch pain all the time. Sure, there's pain, but there's also other sensations. Let it be there in the background. But feel some other sensations. Because that pain will be impermanent. And if you learn to tolerate it, again, build up gradually, you have to build up the tolerance. And by watching it, you see that just before you started to itch something, it disappeared by itself. Let's say there's a stinging sensation on your face, and you see that urge. That it's really kind of painful, and it's really, you know, it's kind of like, you know. But it wells up. Just see how it wells up and comes to a peak. And if you give it a few seconds or minutes or hours, no, if you say, you know, usually 10, 15 seconds for a lot of things, especially stinging, biting sensations, little uh, itches and so on. It's the attention that you're giving it to it, like, I don't like it. That's what makes it appear to be more real. But when you don't give it that attention, feel something else. There's all kinds of sensations around the body you can feel. You don't have to let your mind go to a particular itch or something else. Although you can, and it's good to do that for a while, but if it's something chronic, it's it's not going to go away. There's no point in just continually uh, watching it. You just let it be there and you carry on your meditation as best as possible, observing other sensations coming and going. And so, so, you know, it all, it all takes time. Nothing happens quickly. It takes time. And But uh, as we go on, I'll be, you know, giving uh, some different types of you know, advice or teachings on how how gradually uh, you know you might more effectively deal with these things. But basically, it's just time. Time heals everything, and so there's no quick pill, you know, instant this or that uh, in this type of practice because we've put into, we've got ourselves into this situation and everybody basically has, you know, got themselves in the situation that they're in, although there's other factors and conditioning factors too, but by and large. Uh, and so, you know, we have to work it out. And so the Buddha, you know, worked it out for us. He, you know, he did the homework. He did the math. You know, he understood the mind. And he passed it on to us because it's something that our modern age and society doesn't teach us. And so we have to draw on the wisdom of, some, you know, the ancients. But using our own skills to develop our own power to do it. The Buddha can't do it for you. And he's given us the tools, the methods that we can try. 
And that's, a, that's the way you've learned anything, is by hearing others, reading books, going to workshops, this and that. You learn various things, whether it's about your worldly life, how to become a carpenter, how to become an auto mechanic. And we've taken the advice of the teachers, right? And by practicing it, then we become skilled. So it's, it's the same way. People think, oh, I can do it myself. I, can do it. I don't need the Buddha. Whatever. Okay, well. <laughs> Lots of luck. I have a friend who is a Buddhist, teaches mindfulness, care and compassion at Penn State. He has been meditating for 25 years, but he is prone to depression, anger, and contempt. Why didn't the practice help him? Well, when people say they've been meditating for 25 years, you know, you have to, okay, there's so many kinds of meditation. And even with Buddhism, there's many kinds of meditation. And all meditation doesn't necessarily lead to the purification of the mind. Uh, so, you know, you have to question well, what kind of meditation you've been doing. Like, for example, some people have told me, you know, in interviews or, you know, I've been meditating for 20 years. I say, oh, good, good. What have you been doing? Oh, watching the breath. And I say, and? And they go, is there anything more? So they spent 20 years just watching the breath, but it didn't create any mental transformation. It didn't lead to deep insight. So this is how we have to, you know, we have to understand the method that's involved, especially following the Buddha's teaching of the four foundations of mindfulness, because that's what the Buddha said. This is the direct way for the overcoming of defilements, for the purification of beings. These four foundations of mindfulness, because it's the path that leads directly inside to the source of of consciousness itself. You know, there's other meditations, you know, you, you, you meditate or concentrate and you get some namita and you get absorbed in some white light and bliss and people hang out in that for several hours and they come out, okay, might as well take LSD. I mean, if it's not, you know, not, no, don't quote me on that, okay. <laughs> uh, so just, just meditating to get blissed out, to see white light or to see visions, you know, that's not really meditation. Those are just byproducts, but it's not the real meditation. Me the, the word meditation comes from medicine. The same word. M-E-D-I is the root of medicine, meditation, and mediation. So medicine is the middle path between sickness and health. 
Mediation helps to resolve disputes from opposing parties. And meditation helps to heal ignorance, is, the, is in the middle between ignorance and wisdom, or bondage and freedom. So it, it comes from the same word, it's very interesting. So really, you know, meditation is the medicine for the mind. Dhamma is the, the medicine for the mind. Because meditation is the only thing that can really get to the very, the deeper roots of the mind and consciousness. Psychoactive drugs or whatever the psychologists give you to, to make a neurotic person kind of more relaxed, those things only work on, on the surface level. They don't, they don't go to the root of the problem. So only meditation really can do that. But because meditation is difficult, most people, they'd rather just take pills and drugs and kind of pretend that they're okay. The distinction between vipassana and samatha, or let's say concentration and, and wisdom, or concentration, vipassana, still confuses me because each is sometimes taught as, quote, meditation. Well, both are meditation. You know, samatha meditation or tranquility meditation is also a valid meditation. But it's not necessarily the end-all, be-all to meditation. And again, the, the word meditation is the medicine. So samatha, learning to focus your attention on one point and quieten the mind, okay, that's a medicine for neurotic mind. That's a medicine for restlessness, for jumpy mind. Okay, but that only can that only goes so far. You've got to take it to the next level, which is then opening up to vipassana and, and, and wisdom. But a lot of people don't go beyond that level because they get stuck in the, the bliss and the and the, the good feeling of a, the quiet mind and they just sort of hang out. You know, and they don't want to open up to the pains and and uh, you know, sounds and all your thoughts and so on. The samatha just helps to suppress those things into the unconscious and then you, you kind of feel all right for a while. But when you come out of the meditation, they then come back up. So the function of, of vipassana is to go down into them. Instead of suppressing them, or blocking them out, you go down underneath them and, and learn how to sit through pain, sit through distractions, but uh, also learn how to skillfully deal with them and not to keep feeding them and gradually they, uh, the roots of them get uh, purified. So just very short, that's, I'll be talking about that more later.
So basically, shamatha is a medicine for, uh, you know, just neurotic restlessness and for a jumpy mind and to get calm and peaceful. I mean, not only, and there's lots of benefits of that, but... Uh, and vipassana is the medicine for ignorance. That means going down and seeing how essentially it's the ego, the thought of I, me, and mine, which is the deepest essential cause of suffering and the thing that we're intimately clinging to. And Vipassana, by going deeper, uh, sees through the illusion of, of that. Do you go into vipassana with a meditation object in mind to contemplate? Or do you wait for a subtle object to appear? Well, if you're following the four foundations of mindfulness, then we've already been talking about that. Then you contemplate the body and as you get grounded and centered in the body, then you come in direct contact with the various feelings and sensations that are arising, the painful feelings, pleasant feelings, and you're contemplating impermanence. Basically, vipassana starts with observing impermanence, how quickly things just arise and vanish through the senses, and how everything just arises, lasts a few moments, and vanishes if you don't cling to it. But when you cling to it, you make that object appear to last, and then you struggle and suffer on it. So in Vipassana training, yes, the topic is uh, impermanence. But to do that, first you have to get relaxed, and you have to get centered, and a little bit of concentration to create that buffer zone. You know, the concentration is uh, staying connected to the breathing or the body for a longer period of time will, will create this kind of a buffer, a non-reactive zone, which then you can more clearly see things as they are coming and going, but without neurotically reacting to them. You can endure that pain long enough to see how it eventually vanishes and uh, other things. But I'll be talking more about this as we go on. Uh, And even in Vipassana, very subtle objects also arise, but you don't even get attached to that. Like in Samatha, they may say, well, if a Namita arises, then you want to focus on that. But in Vipassana, we say, no, even if a Namita arises, don't focus on that, because that's also impermanent. And uh, basically, you, you tune in to the flow of impermanence and riding the wave of uh, present moment. Uh, anyway, we'll, we'll talk more about that later. Though it's not practiced here, is it possible to follow or focus on the heartbeat or pulse during meditation? Well, I would say yes, one could. Uh, and I've already mentioned that. So how many times have I said, try to feel the pulsations? Anybody remember that? 
feel the heartbeat. Did I mention that? Okay. Of course, that's my style and that's my practice because that's, that's been my vehicle since I first started meditating 40 years ago. But, uh, you know, other people, you know, they have different uh, approaches. But anyway, so, uh, yes, the breathing is normally given as the, you know, the, the main or popular object of concentration, like in the Anapanasati Sutta, and, and that's right. But one could, at the same time, as you're observing the breath, you know, you can feel pulsations, you can feel the heart beating. And if feeling the pulse helps you to stay alert to the present moment, more than the breathing, I would say that's okay. But ideally, as you develop that continuous connection to the breathing, uh, then you will automatically feel things around in the breathing, like pulsations, even the heart beating, many type of sensations coming and going, but the breath is still there in the middle and of coming and going, but you're observing these other uh, momentary sensations, like the pulse. It's very good, actually, because the pulse arises and vanishes very quickly. Boom, it's just like that. Where the breath might last a few moments, the in-breath, even though the little sensations are rising and vanishing, but a pulse, you know, is very perks up the mind, boom. And uh, so if you feel that in the background, anything that makes the mind stay alert and bright and avoid sleepiness or getting lost in your thoughts, I would say it's going to be a valid, uh, a valid object. Because people are different. Not everybody may be able to follow the breath. Uh, but the main criteria is what is it leading to? That's what you always have to ask yourself. What is it leading to? And in Vipassana meditation, it leads to the perception of impermanence. It's called anicca sanya. I'm going to talk more about that later. But anyway, yes, if you're meditating, and the pulse helps you to stay alert from moment to moment. But not only that, don't concentrate fully on it, but, you know, but still be awake to notice other things, to feel the breathing in the, in the background. And actually, in Vipassana, the more things you can feel and observe, the, the, the more expansive the awareness becomes. That's what's called expanding the mind, the ability to feel and observe many things occurring simultaneously. And that's a more advanced level. So, But again, you can't just immediately try to do that because the mind has to get some tranquility first. Otherwise, you'll be disturbed by feeling and observing so many things happening. The mind will get overwhelmed like you know, a freight train barreling down on you or something. But it's the concentration and the tranquility uh, what helps to, uh, to temper that. It helps to uh, you know, keep that from being overwhelmed. That's why mindfulness and concentration have to be balanced. If there's too much concentration, the mind can space out, or go to sleep, or just get lost and you know, feel good 
sensation. And if there's too much awareness without the tranquility, the mind can uh, you know, be kind of oh, hyperactive. So that's why they have to be balanced. You mentioned the mind-body connection. Are difficult memories worth analyzing during mindfulness of the body? Uh, yes, certain thoughts. I was going to probably talk about this more uh, tomorrow uh, in the instructions, but certain thoughts, if they keep coming back over and over, and a memory basically is a kind of a thought. You, know, you remember something that happened to you, and, you know, so basically it's a thought, uh, and it keeps coming back, and just you know, say, you know, noting it as thinking, thinking, you know, it may not, you know, it may stop for a moment or two, and it keeps coming back. Uh, so it's like a a dog following you down the street, you know, trying to bite your pant leg, and you try to shake it off, and it comes back again and again. So what do you do? Pick up a stick and throw it. The dog runs after the stick and gives you time to go in the house and get on your bike and drive away. So in the same way, in these instances with difficult memories, especially personal issues, maybe you're worrying about your health or your mother's dying or whatever. So many, you know, very, there's a lot of issues like that that people can't get out of their mind because they're very, uh, you know, they touch you very deep. So you can analyze them, yes. Put it in front of your mind and say, why does this thought keep coming back to me? What is this, what's so important about this memory? What am I attached to? Am I attached to the pleasant feeling and the, and the, the great whatever it was you got in that experience? Or you're worried about death, you're afraid of dying, or afraid of you know, getting some disease. You can't stop those things. So you can analyze them. But it all comes back, when you analyze it, it all comes back to attachment. The mind is attached to it in one way or another. You're either attached to the pain and want to get rid of it, or you're attached to the pleasure and you want to hold on to it. Or you want to prevent impermanence from happening. You want to prevent death, you can't do that. You want to prevent disease, you can't really do that. And so you come to rational terms. By analyzing, you kind of you know, come to terms. Okay, yeah, you know, why should I start, you know, keep worrying about this? It's just a, a useless, futile thing. And then the mind drop it. Of course, it may not happen immediately, but if you do that over and over, the quicker you nip it in the bud by bringing up this type of understanding, and not feeding it. See, that's what we do. We always feed our emotions and thoughts by justifications and by whatever. And that's what keeps them strong. <clears throat> so in the Vipassana practice, we apply these tools of mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom to apply it to anything that is disturbing our present moment flow of awareness. It comes up. You analyze it, investigate it in terms of impermanence and no self. But the second factor of enlightenment is investigation of Dhamma. 
So that includes intellectual analysis to a certain extent and observation and putting two and two together and seeing the connections and, and just like a scientist would observe something happening under the microscope. And that's how we have to observe what's happening in us. In meditation, sometimes my head sways from side to side. My torso does the same thing by itself. Why? What should I do? Well, there's lots of energies that are circulating in the body. And uh, they're called the pranavayus in the yoga terminology. But uh, anyway, it's, it's a complex subject. But anyway, you know, there's so many things. and Anything can really happen in the body. You know, you could experience trembling and shaking. You could experience, uh, you, know, you know, the body going like this. Some people enjoy that. There was a girl in a meditation retreat one time many years ago. And, you know, she was sitting fairly in front, you know, and, I, and she was going like this. And I could see she was kind of enjoying it. <laughs> and she was just... Spend the whole hour like that, you know, because they, you know it's just, so you, you you observe it and you know you can you can interrupt it if you forcibly do it, but if you if you kind of enjoy it and get into it, then of course you're just prolonging it and it's not going to come to anything. It's not going to do you any good. Uh, and the same with other uh, you know kind of movements. You just observe them, and you try to just uh, uh, try to see the urge that's underlying this uh, movement, because underlying that there will be a kind of an urge, but it may be too subtle for you to see. But once you develop a more subtle awareness, then you'll be able to see, and then you'll be able to relax around those things, and uh, and those things may stop eventually. There's a lot of things that come up in meditation. We don't know why or how or what, you know, what the heck, you know. And they come up and we might get excited by them, but they can vanish just as fast as they came. They can vanish too. Some things may come up, last a few days, and then you think they're going to last forever and you get worried about it. And the next day they, they vanish never to come again. It's like things come out of the blue and they vanish into the blue without our asking. And that's just the nature, the complex mystery and nature of the body and mind. And so in Vipassana, we're just the witness. We don't get attached to anything that comes up, white lights or anything else, floating. It's just phenomena. It's the awareness that we're after. It's the awareness. The awareness is the only thing real, not the objects of awareness. And so that's what we're trying to cultivate is awareness and not get attached to the objects of awareness. Because the objects come and go. Awareness is the permanent state, is the deathless state. But a a very refined and purified level of awareness, not the ordinary states that you might have right now. 
you've mentioned ground zero. Can you describe it in the best way to get to it? Ground zero, I mean, it's just a popular expression, right? It's used all the time. So, But basically, it means sort of the bottom line. Ground zero means the present moment. Because everything arises out of the present moment awareness. The past and future are created out of objects that arise in the present moment. You know? You have a certain smell, and then the mind remembers that. Oh, last week I had this smell. Oh, I want that again in the future. But it was something that came out of the present moment. But because of attachment, you create the past and future. Uh, so, and but the ground zero, the breathing body, because that's, you know, the breathing body. Every the whole world comes and goes through the breathing body. Everything else can vanish, you know. Your mother and father will vanish. Your girlfriend or husband or wife or children will vanish. Your Mercedes-Benz will vanish. The house will burn down. But your loyal friend that's there with you until you die is the, breathe, the breath and the sensations in the body. That's your only friend. That's the only thing you can depend on. That's what I mean by ground zero. Always coming back to that, ah oh, yes, just sitting and breathing. Because everything else is imagination, basically. The mind just spinning out. And then when you understand that, that is the beginning of wisdom, when you get insight into that. Like an ah, wow. That actually, yeah, you kind of, you got an insight into that. And that's very powerful. Or when the, the sense of the ego and the I starts to vanish. And, you know, these are very powerful experiences. But those are insights. So, anyway. That's why it's called insight meditation. Vipassana meditation is normally called insight meditation. Synonymous term. Because of these insights or intuitive glimpses of the deeper reality of the mind. So, again, the best way to get to it is developing this continuous remembering of sitting and breathing. It's not just remembering it, it's feeling the process. You're feeling, you know, the breathing process going on. You're feeling the sensations of the sitting posture and other things. You get deeply rooted in it. And from that, you see how everything is arising and passing away, you know, sound, sight, smells, taste, touches, our thoughts are just arising and vanishing through this, this space of awareness. So you see how the world is created, you see how the world arises and how it continues and how it ceases. Again, not the world, this earth, the world of how our mind is creating its, its world. So this is, you know, it's very deep. 
And it's scary for a lot of people. That's why a lot of people don't want to go there. Because they're afraid of what they might see, or afraid of what it's going to tell them, and what they have to do. So it takes a lot of courage. There's a simile of you know, a meditator to a warrior. It's taking up the battle against ignorance and conditioning. It takes a lot of courage to face that, courage to sit through pain, courage to observe all your crazy thoughts. Could you please talk a little bit more about how to integrate metta info or into your mind and body connection process? Well, metta basically, you know, the, the thought of friendliness towards others is an antidote for ill will and anger. And ill will and anger is caused by, you know, our ego clinging to its self and anything that threatens the ego, anger arises. And metta is an antidote for that by realizing that all beings are basically in the same karmic boat, so to speak, and all beings suffer and that we all affect each other one way or another. I mean, it's, I don't want to, I'm not going to go into detail because it's a big subject in itself. Uh, but, so the, the practice of metta, even in vipassana, if one of these recurring thoughts is anger toward a person, or even anger toward yourself, or ill will, you can use that as an investigation, analyze it. Why am I angry at this person? What did they do to me? Have I not done things to others? Maybe this is a karmic payback. We don't know. But you can analyze it in that way and hopefully get a little bit of, maybe some clarity on it, and then and say, okay, yeah, just you know, let them be. And at least stop uh, uh, regenerating the the anger and feeding it. And so you cultivate these more friendly people. That, uh, and, and the idea that we've all been interconnected in the many infinite lives that we have. Now, if you don't believe in rebirth, then, you're, then you may have a problem with that. But if you believe in the idea of rebirth, then uh, it's also an effective way that, uh, you know, in all of our previous lives, we've, every, we've been everybody's mother, brother, father, friend, enemy, and stranger over again. So an enemy or somebody you don't like in this life, you might have been related to them in the past life. They might have been your mother or your father or your children in a past life. Uh, that's the way you can think. And say, oh, yes. And so the, the idea is that you try to see people, even your enemies, as maybe one time having been your mother. And so you try to, or your child, so you try to cultivate these, you know, give them a break. 
You know, it's ignorance that's making them do those things, not them. It's ignorance and conditioning that makes people do what they do. You know, the heart or the whatever you want to call it, the soul or the pure awareness, that, that's pure. It's only been contaminated by so many uh, layers and layers of greed, hatred, and delusion that we've been passing down through the course of sansara and, and uh, evolution. Now, these are difficult concepts to understand, but this is part of that, uh, the way of uh, learning how to cultivate this uh, right thought and to deal with uh, these strong uh, emotions. So metta practice is one way of, uh, of doing that. But people who don't have a lot of anger and ill will, uh, they may not need to practice that too much. Actually, all the different meditation techniques that you might hear about in Buddhism, it's like going to your medicine chest. Again, meditation, medicine, right? So you go to a medicine chest, you take one pill for a cold, take another pill for an allergy, you take another pill for upset stomach. So whatever the problem is, you take a pill. Well, some people do. <laughs> so whatever problem you have, there's a meditation, a reflection, a contemplation in the Buddhist uh, repertoire to address that. So if you have a lot of anger and ill will and ego conceit, then you can practice you know, metta, and or if a lot of attachment, you practice the perception of impermanence. Or if you have a lot of conceit, pride, you can practice the contemplation of no self. If you're attachment to food, you can practice the, you know, the seeing the repulsiveness of of food and other types of things. There are so many type of reflections found within the Buddhist uh, uh, canon. And some of them are reflective and discursive thinking meditations, but they, they can be very powerful. And so, you know, you can use these different methods to address those particular issues. And when those issues get resolved, it comes back to vipassana. Or it comes back to then just allowing the mind to open up into the flow of present moment awareness and then these obstructions and things that you were formerly attached to, they stop coming to interfere. And that's the way you you make gradually purification of the mind. I often find myself grasping at what I consider progress, better concentration, less mind-wandering, dealing with pain better, white lights. <laughs> no. The end result being I get frustrated. That's because you can't control these things. And Progress, you're making me answer a lot of things I was going to talk about in tomorrow's talk but the, or in the instructions. But this idea of so-called good meditations and bad meditations, you should try to avoid getting too 
attached to these concepts. But sure, you can say that you know, the ability to have better concentration, not so many wandering thoughts, the ability to endure pain more, the ability to see more subtly, you know, naturally you're going to get excited because you've been struggling, you've been practicing meditation for a long time, and then finally, you know, you know, something is happening. So it's okay, I mean, you know, it's okay. But don't cling to it because it's not necessarily going to last. A lot of times we think when we start having a good, good meditation that every meditation after that is going to be good. If you have a good meditation, expect the next time not so good meditation. Or maybe you have two or three good meditations and all of a sudden you have a, a bad meditation. That means mind full of monkey thoughts and agitation, getting upset at small little uh, things. Uh. Because what happens is when you get concentration and you get some tranquility, and you, it's again, it's like suppressing the defilements down. It's like pressing the top of the unconscious mind, pushing it down. So you're pushing your neurotic thoughts down. You're pushing your anger and emotions down through the force of the concentration. And then when you come out of the meditation, because they were under pressure, they, they come back up again. So in the next meditation, you might have to deal with that. But then you burn those off, what I call pockets of karma, you know, and by, by letting them come up and mindfully allowing agitation, negative thoughts to come up, but not identifying with them or feeding them, uh, then they kind of burn themselves out. Uh, but if you identify with the thoughts and say, yes, that person hurt me, I'm going to get back to them, I have the right to, then you're pushing that back, you're pushing it right back down in yourself, which then is going to keep coming out again and again. So, anyway, so this, you know, if you have good meditations, don't be surprised, don't be dejected if you have a not so good meditation. But that will burn off and then you will have more better meditations again. And, but that could go on for long periods of time even years, because there's so many layers of stuff, repressed stuff, that's in the unconscious mind. <clears throat> so you shouldn't get too elated when you have a so-called good meditation, or don't get attached to it and don't be frustrated when it's not so good. You say, okay, it may not be good. Or it may be. We, can't, we, we can never expect what's going to happen. You sit down in meditation, you cannot expect what's going to happen because usually what you expect will be the opposite. Not always, but... Because the expectation is what blocks your present moment awareness. You're hoping for the future. So that blocks that relaxation, that creates some tension in the nervous system that then interferes with the awareness. How to overcome extreme sleepiness even when walking. Walk up on the roof.
or walk on this rocky, stony path out there. So you have to keep awake not to trip over a stone or a root or something. Uh, but, you know, sleepiness is one of the, the hindrances, and it's in, ingrained. It's not just because you're tired. It's because you might think too much. Thinking too much causes sleepiness, too. It's the mind's protective mechanism to shut off all the nonsense going through your mind uh, temporarily. Or it can be other factors, you know, uh, having some, you know, pollutions inside of you and so on, or some, you know toxic stuff, so many things, but gradually, uh, you know, when you continue to meditate and also to observe a, you know, more healthy kind of lifestyle, and, uh, the practice of mindfulness and gradually let, let me, you know, gradually diminish. And especially when you, uh, you know, practice the moment-to-moment -moment attention and feeling many things, that what like, perks up uh, the awareness. If you don't have much to feel, then the mind just, you know. And most people's bodies are like, like a lump of lead for them. It's amazing, you know. Talk to people and say, I can't feel anything in my body. What? My God. Your body's billions of cells atoms and they're all vibrating. You can't feel anything? really blows my mind. Not really. <laughs> but you know. Because, but once you practice yoga and you, you make a habit of using uh, the body to be grounded in the body and you, you start feeling that aliveness of the body, you can almost all, any, any moment you just stop and pause, boom, the whole body is there. The aliveness of the whole body is just permeating your awareness and you can't go to sleep in that state. But a lot of people think that's too active and they want to be more quiet. And, uh, so, you know, these are just different types of experiences. Uh, and also some foods may make you sleepy. So you have to, overeating is a cause of sleepiness, especially like after... You know, you eat if you eat too much, then you get drowsy in the meditation and so on. So by becoming more sensitive to the body, then you also you can understand what what affects the body in different ways. Is mindfulness of sound? considered part of mindfulness of the body? And if so, can you tell us a bit about how it's practiced? Well, you know, we practice mindfulness of the body to become grounded and centered. That doesn't mean you're not going to hear things. So yes, you're you're feeling the breathing, you're feeling sensation, but naturally, you're, at the same time, you're going to hear things. You can't prevent it. It's going to happen. And it's just an object that's arising and vanishing, but you're grounded in the body sensations. You're grounded, you're connected to the breathing, so the sounds no longer disturb you like they might have ordinarily. 
So you don't necessarily do a sound meditation, but you can. Let's say if you don't have many body sensations, then you can do a listening meditation. I wouldn't call it mindfulness of the body, but you know these aspects of mindfulness can be easily interchanged and used, uh, you know, concurrently and supplementary. And there's no, there's no, you know, conflict really. When you understand what the practice is, so, uh, but yeah, you can do a listening meditation, and just, but. Just seeing how quickly different sounds arise and vanish. So at any one time, there's usually many sounds available. Sounds on this side, sounds on that side, sounds in the back, sounds in the front, sounds from inside your body, uh, distant sounds, near sounds. It's amazing. You can, but you you concentrate on just the how many different sounds you can notice, not thinking about them. And that perks up and makes the mind very bright in the same way that body sensations would. So yes, that, that you can get very concentrated doing that. But it's the impermanence and seeing how quickly the sounds just arise and vanish and are constantly changing. Like the sounds of the crickets. You know, that's comprised of many hundreds and thousands of sounds that are just arising and vanishing very rapidly. But normally we just say, oh, that's a cricket chirping, and I wish you'd shut up, and all that, you know. One time there's a frog pond out here in the springtime. There's hundreds of frogs croaking. And people, some people got upset. How can I meditate? All these frogs are croaking. <laughs> I'm sorry. Because <laughs> people get so attached to what they call meditation because they don't understand really what what the end result of meditation is, especially in vipassana. Now, if you're practicing on concentrating on the breath, you'll have problems with that. But if you're practicing vipassana, sounds and other things are not a distraction. They're part of the process of understanding the nature of the mind, the nature of perception, and how we get attached and easily disturbed by you know, sounds. I mean, look, this guy has a PhD and he's getting disturbed by a frog croaking. I mean, what is that? PhD in physics. He's disturbed by a frog. <laughs> I, I'm not making light of that. But, you know, when you think about it, it's, you know, kind of ridiculous how we, we get upset out of such small, ridiculous things. It's simply because our mind is not uh, tranquil and, and relaxed. And uh, so on. If strong pain causes aversion, is it okay to note aversion or disliking unpleasant. Well, once a, when you notice that first arising of the pain, the mind is getting kind of pulled. You can feel that kind of tension, the mind contracting. Then yes, immediately just be aware. Ah, sensation, sensation. You don't have to call it pain. Because pain is just an intense sensation. There's no fine dividing line between 
pleasure and pain because that's different for different people. But it's just a, a body sensation of different intensities. And if we don't like it, we call it pain. And if we like it, we call it a pleasant feeling. And, but those can be changed. What once used to cause you pain can actually bring a, a neutral feeling or even a pleasant sensation. Like an itch, for example. You know, you've got a strong itch. And usually we just, you know, oh, I want to get it. But you just observe it. You observe the little sensations and how it kind of wells up, increases, and it decreases. And you try to observe it like the, with the fascination of a, a child watching ants crawling on the ground. And you relax around it. And you realize, oh, that, that itch, yes, it's not so bad. It's only a conditioned reaction. And then you can actually enjoy it. And even a pain. Because you're relaxing around it and you're allowing this painful or unpleasant sensation to well up, but the, the ego isn't grasping at it. And so you see the wonder of that and you see how you can endure that, and that actually makes you happy when you actually see how the mind can, in fact, endure things a lot more than what you thought in the past. It makes you happy. It gives you joy. So you can even experience joy even while experiencing unpleasant sensations if you know how to contemplate it, if you know how to observe it and relax around. Covered a lot of ground. <laughs> Give you a lot to contemplate, right? Well, that's the purpose of these things, actually, you know. When you hear things and you, you know, this is what then when you meditate and something comes up, you, you remember that. Oh, yes. Impermanence, you know, okay. Relax. You know. It's, you know, it's going to change. You know. These thoughts and emotions that you have, yeah, the person's not that bad, okay, you know. I mean, May God angry me, no big deal, you know. Give him a break. Send him some metta. You know. And so you can carry on with your your moment-to-moment -moment, uh, concentration and awareness without getting stuck and dragged and pulled by so many of these things. But that's what's called chintamaya panya, or reflective wisdom. I'm going to talk about more of that later. But... Uh, so this analysis of stuff, especially as it's coming up in the present moment, uh, that's a valid part of vipassana practice, especially in the beginning. Okay, so again, as we did after the Dhamma talk, try to let go of that outward excitement. If you want to say sadhu, you can. Somebody had a question about what is the meaning of sadhu. So in the, in the Buddhist tradition, sadhu is kind of like an exclamation of joy whenever you 
do or see or hear something that's uplifting and so on, or, you know, some wholesome thing, especially some uplifting thing, like hearing Dhamma talks especially, or other things like that that you can't hear, at, you know, in Walmart and places like that, you know. So, you know, you're, you're acknowledging that, uh, you know, you know that, that thing was you know, something good as opposed to something negative, you know, something that helps the mind, uplifts the mind, helps the, you know, so that's the meaning of that. Okay, again, just kind of sit straight, take a couple of deep breaths, just come to ground zero. We're going to stand up in a minute, but just for a minute, just to try to touch base with the body. Take a deep three-part breath, bringing the air up into the upper lungs. Hold the air in for several seconds. Feel that relaxing at the end of the out-breath. Feel the buttocks pressing the floor. Here and now, sitting, sitting. Now, you can slowly stand up and do a short standing meditation, awareness, maybe a couple stretches before sitting down for the last meditation. Mm -hmm. 